1. Game worlds should be substrates, not vessels. 2. Games should suggest the power of non-human agency. 3. Game worlds ought to surprise us. 4. Games should entangle us. 5. Games should support a wider range of player-environment interaction. 6. Games should leverage scale. 7. The people who make games should take into account the energy and resource demands of their games. 8. Games should take us outdoors. 9. Graphics shouldn't be everything. 10. Games should help us mourn. Have you ever wished that there was a game design manifesto for environmental intelligence like this? I know I have, and now there is. What you have just heard is um, the core points of a manifesto written by Alenda Chang, who is today's guest on the podcast. Alenda is an associate professor in film and media studies at University of California, Santa Barbara. She's the author of what many call the first book on environmental game design called Playing Nature. And last summer she wrote this magnificent uh, manifesto that you have just heard. And in this episode I have the privilege of picking her brain about that. And I can't wait to do it, so let's go! How's it going? Oh, it's great. Nice to meet you, by the way. I've, I've heard good things about you. <laughs> we haven't really had a chance to chat yet, though. I'm, I'm, I'm super excited to talk to you. Cause, uh, <laughs> I, I mean, you've been a leader for years now in, in this sort of exciting young field of uh, eco-critical theory of games, I guess. Mm -hmm. Or how, how would you describe it? Yeah, I think that's that sounds perfect, actually. And I... I think now I'm starting to think of it in terms of environmental media studies. Just as a kind of tiny primer for our listeners, uh, eco-criticism, what is that? Because mm -hmm. a lot of people probably haven't heard the term before, and I, I hadn't until a couple of years ago. Right. The term eco-criticism doesn't come around until Cheryl Glofelti at um, University of Nevada, Reno kind of comes up with it. But it emerges out of um, literature studies, so things like... Um, you know, studies of nature writing and uh, that sort of canon of, of authors. It's usually British romanticists. Right, but, but fiction then? Well, it could be poetry. It could also be um, like memoirs, like nonfiction, like um, Thoreau's Walden. All right. But there's um, basically it's an interest in environmental representation within literature. And then um, and then there kind of comes like a, a second wave where they start to pay attention to things that are outside of print. <laughs> mm. And um, and I just happened to kind of ride that wave because of my own upbringing and being somebody who played and really enjoyed games and just felt like, uh, you know, I was trained in literature and was seeing that these two areas weren't speaking to each other. And that seemed 
um, kind of silly. So I just, uh, I mean, it was low hanging fruit, I'll admit it. <laughs> so, um, so, you know, some of my first writing was just exploring, um, how do you talk about games as environmental, um, texts, you know, I know they're not texts, but you know, we use that term very loosely. In the broad sense. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm glad you, you guys started working on that because it's, it's coming in real handy now yeah, when exactly. game developers are starting to figure out how, how to address like the climate crisis and environmental degradation in, in games in various ways. Yeah. I think, um, I'm lucky to be, I think I'm lucky to be maybe the first person to write, um, like a monograph about it, but I don't think I will be the last. And I'm, I'm actually really excited to see what other people think. And, and we don't all have to agree, obviously. Uh, when I kind of decided to dedicate myself to fighting climate change back in 2018, uh, I, I kind of quickly came upon a special issue of a journal called Ecozona. Oh, yeah. Or Ecozone at, I don't know, there's an yeah, at Yeah, I think it's Ecozona, but the, <laughs> the yeah. at symbol. Uh, and you were the editor of that that issue that was entirely focused on games as or, or gaming and the environment, I guess. Yes, with um, I actually uh, John Parham was the other editor, and he asked me to to kind of um, to get involved because of he knew my work. That was a fun one to do. Yeah, I, I devoured that <laughs> when, when I was I, I was looking for you know any way to to engage with well climate change and and, and the environment through the lens of games. Oh, wonderful! And uh, I, I found that, and it. it Seemed to me like the, the 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 whole sort of field of study just sprang to life from nothing at, at that moment. Right. I, I don't know if, if that's what happened, or if yeah, I do think it is kind of yeah, it is, it is kind of there are bits and uh, here and there, and then um, suddenly we start to have the journal issues, which you apparently cottoned on to quickly, and then now there's now there's a book, and um, and then I think there will be more more and more of this, and maybe some edited collections mm. if we're lucky. So. And just to recap, you you went on to publish a book in 2019 called Playing Nature, um, which uh, you've kind of talked about that on a couple of other podcasts before. So I'm thinking we'll we'll skip over that today, and I'll link to the, the two other uh, another podcast in in the show notes so that everyone can listen to that. Because uh, mm. today I sort of wanted to focus on the article that you published in an art journal in the summer of 2020, mm-hmm. so last summer, mm-hmm. uh, titled mm-hmm. Rambunctious Games, a Manifesto for Environmental Game Design. I don't know which part of the title sort of makes me drool the most, uh, <laughs> but it, maybe we should start with the word rambunctious, because like as, as a non-native speaker, I had never heard this <laughs> word before. Uh, and I, I get that it sort of portrays an, an a certain attitude, I guess. But what are the sort yeah. of images that come to mind when you when you hear the word rambunctious? Um, actually, you know, I think about my son. Okay, okay. <laughs> who is seven years old. So just imagine a seven-year-old boy <laughs> um, at recess or something like that. So um, I think, you know, I talk a little bit about the etymology um, of rambunctious as, um, well, not the etymology, but the definition here, but um, uncontrollably exuberant or boisterous, wild, unruly. Um, there's an older version of the term that I love that's rumbustious, I think. Rumbustious. <laughs> yeah, isn't that lovely? <laughs> but I'm I'm really taking this term, I'm borrowing it from one of the inspirations for this this piece, and that was the journalist Emma Maris's book, Rambunctious Gardens. Yes. And um, so that's, you know, I think I was um uh trying to incorporate some of the philosophy that she outlines in her book, which is really uh, non-fictional sort of, uh, investigative journalism around, uh, the disappearance of wild nature and mm-hmm. 
the need to kind of come to grips with this, both philosophically and also in terms of landscape management. And so, you know, she does this, she gets to kind of go all around the world and look at um, different landscapes, some of which are still fairly pristine and others that are very carefully managed. And I think for her, the image of the rambunctious garden is the one that she is upholding and trying to um, get environmentalists on board with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's it's a little bit of a difficult sell because I think um, many people who are um, who would classify themselves as environmentalists are, are still holding tight to this ideal of um, untouched nature. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, it's this idea that we can sort of preserve some of the world apart from us or in its original state. And, and she's, she's really, I think, trying to be pragmatic and still also hopeful and say that, um, you know, that's untenable at this point because humankind has had such a dramatic impact on the world. And even if you did find, um, you know, like the, I think there's a primeval forest that she visits in Poland or, or something like that. Um, but, you know, even these relatively untouched landscapes are still affected by, you know, different atmospheric levels of carbon yeah. <laughs> um, or, you know, uh, you know, trace radioactive particles from nuclear tests and those kinds of things. And so I think, um, you know, this is something we study as well in environmental history and environmental studies, which is in some ways we have to let go of that um, ideal because mm. um, it's not, it's not that it's just naive, but that it's um, it sort of prevents us from doing the work that we that is necessary to move forward, <laughs> and I think she's the rambunctious garden metaphor is this idea that um, we can still preserve some of that quality of wildness, but that we have to do it through management, which is sort of counterintuitive. Right. Um, yeah. So you know, managed care, <laughs> and still and still have that exuberance and and some of the unruliness, but uh, but through um, engineering or through design. Right. That makes sense. Uh, we're going to get to games in a moment, but I, I just want to make sure that I, I understand this sort of cornerstone of the manifesto. And and I'm, I know I should be asking these questions to Emma Maris, but <laughs> I, I don't have access to her. Because uh, th- this is kind of new to me, the idea that well, the, the wilderness is sort of doomed or, or lost or, or indeed might not, doesn't even exist anymore in, in this mm. definition of, of wilderness, mm-hmm. right? Because... Mm-hmm. We don't have anything that's entirely pristine and untouched by humanity anymore. And we don't have that sort of mm-hmm. um, divide between the human world and the natural world. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I, I assume she means that there is still a, a, a value in sort of approaching wilderness or, or mm-hmm. le- leaving places as wild as can be or... or mm-hmm. Or is yeah, that I think, a myth? I think so. Um, I mean, I think, I think she still has, um, you know, has that healthy sense of wonder and awe at those places that she visits that are relatively unscathed. <laughs> um, but again, they, you know, it's in the context of, of like a, of a national reserve, right. Or, or something like yeah. a state park or, or a national park. And, um, I guess it's, it's in part an acknowledgement that, um, that a lot of the wilderness spaces that we do have, are still with us because of legislation mm-hmm. <laughs> or, or other, um, or lobbying on the part of, um, of, of environmental groups to, um, to purchase and conserve land. Right. Yeah. So I think, um, so there's always a sense of, um, you know, we can't just sort of, um, hope that it will happen. Um, and it, there are a lot of fraught issues involved with this, including, um, 
you know, it's environmental historians like to point to if, you know, if you're going to uphold some sort of originary state as the ideal, <laughs> there are a lot of assumptions kind of baked into that, right? So it's a, you know, are we going to roll roll back before colonial settlement? Yeah, what's, what <laughs> are state we going... are we actually preserving? Yeah, exactly. And and it doesn't, it doesn't, um, it doesn't really, uh, I don't know, hold water in light of all the massive environmental changes that are happening with you know, invasive species and um, human travel and just like radical, radical change at all levels, you know, biogeochemical, yeah. <laughs> everything. And so, um, yeah, I think there's, you know, I think she realizes that there's a sort of sadness in, in letting go some of that. But um, I think she she's very much angling um, to be more joyful and hopeful and to kind of see in this gardener's mindset <laughs> some hope for the future. I, I kind of feel like there are two aspects of this Ramakrishna's garden idea. Like the, the part that's easier to grasp for me is what well, we've been talking about, like nature has become a garden rather than a wilderness. And mm-hmm. well, because humans have taken a certain amount of sort of control over it and there's really no mechanism through which we can go back from that. Uh, mm-hmm. So we have a we, we have to assume the, the sort of responsibility to become custodians of the earth. Uh, mm-hmm. But then there's the rambunctious aspect, which seems kind of <laughs> less tangible and more I don't know more of an attitude or a feeling. What what is it that makes this garden rambunctious in in Maris's view and in in yours? I, I suppose. You know, I I have sort of an interest in gardening as well. Um, I'm not a master gardener in any way, but hmm. uh, you know, you there are many wonderful literary folk who have. Um, written about gardening and I think of like Jamaica Kincaid and others. Um, and there's a certain kind, a style of gardening, like especially um, British gardening, where if you can imagine like, I don't know, Q, <laughs> Q gardens or something okay. um, or something or, or Versailles, it's very orderly. And, um, you know, you've got, the plants are almost like color blocks right. and, um, you know, topiaries that are carved into geometric shapes. And I mean, to me, that's one, that's very much one style of garden that represents domination of, of nature, right. Mm. Or sort of, it's just purely aesthetic or, um, uh, it's not really allowing the, the sort of plants to, um, to sort of have agency of their own. And I think the rambunctious garden is one that is much more, uh, like a, um, like a wildflower garden or something where I think, um, species are, are native. They're encouraged to, to interact and overspill their boundaries. And, um, and I, I do think that's what Emma Maris has in mind Mm -hmm. with the rambunctious garden and, um, and to see earth itself as a rambunctious garden that, um, that is both tended and allowed to, um, allowed to have its own agency at the same time. I think of it as kind of a balance between order and chaos, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. Like, like the, the garden <laughs> brings a, a framework of order, but within that there there needs to be sort of chaos allowed. Yeah, exactly. And I think um, it, it's so maybe it's not to think of it as the walled garden of, of you know, like paradise or Eden or something like that, but mm. but something something a little more um, boundaryless yeah. um, where where the care is happening uh, at, at certain levels or at certain times, but is, is not ever present. Right. This is where 
I, 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 I can smell the game design in this a little oh, bit. Oh, good. <laughs> That's what I keep doing. I feel like these are sort of like um, like smoke signals I'm sending up, <laughs> wafting into right. the air, hoping somebody will will see what I'm trying to say. So I listened to another podcast recently, uh, the, the How to Save a Planet. Oh, that's handy. Yeah, right. We need to know that. Um, it quoted an, uh, an indigenous leader uh, about like the uh, the role of the tribe uh, mm. or, or that the, they didn't view nature as, as as having been pristine ever. Exactly, uh, yeah. And, and so they, they viewed themselves or like humanity as needing to keep nature in balance because on its own it, it, it will spiral mm-hmm. out of control. Yeah, uh, I think that's true because a lot of the sort of naive vision of wilderness is didn't acknowledge that indigenous peoples have been tending it for, <laughs> for centuries, um, if not longer. Yeah. Like, especially in, in the U S yeah. You come to this pristine landscape and you think this is nature. <laughs> right. They've been, they've actually been burning out the understory for, <laughs> for who knows how long and collecting things and spreading seeds. And, uh, yeah, I've been reading braiding sweetgrass, which is actually, um, a really good compliment to this discussion because it's a sort of taking a uh, a botanist view. So somebody who's been trained as a scientist, but who's also um, part of the Patawatami tribe and sort of, uh, you know, reflecting on um, the relationship to to land and to plant species that was different in indigenous thinking. But yeah, okay, let's let's go to games, I guess. Because yeah. uh, what you move on to do then in, in the article is that you take these principles and, and see how they can be used to as I, I think you put it like i outline a handful of principles and caveats for those looking to build and play more environmentally mm-hmm. intelligent <laughs> games uh, I, I love that phrasing I, I also want more environmentally yeah. intelligent <laughs> games first i wanted to ask i guess like why is it important that we build and play environmentally <laughs> intelligent games is there like a theory of change here like in, in what way does this benefit our minds right. or the world around yeah, us yeah i think um you know as a media studies scholar now um we have all these various models about media effects and it used to be this, um, kind of, again, very simplistic hypodermic needle model of, you know, um, create media, inject change <laughs> into users. Uh-huh. And it wasn't always leveraged in a positive way. Um, you know, so the sort of debates about violence in various media, whether it's TV or games have this very simplistic notion that, you know, if you play a violent video game, you'll become, you know, a psychopath or something like that. So, um, (laughs) we've come, I've hope we've come a long way from that, um, to more of a, of a media influence model. And so, um, you know, I think a lot of environmental game design is, is still trying to achieve something more direct, a bit more like the hypodermic model. Um, I'm a little bit more on the influence side that where it's maybe a little bit more ambiguous and uh, leaves a little more room for designers to play and for users to kind of create their own interpretations. But um, Mm. yeah, I think, I mean, I I see this again um, through the lens of, uh, you know, parenting and, um, and I think um, we should be creating games that are sort of disrupting the status quo and that appeal to environmentalists, but we should also be making mainstream games um, more environmentally intelligent, just if if only because they reach so many people and um, so yeah. many people spend, I don't know what, billions of hours playing these games and that they inevitably have some sort of shaping influence on the ways that we um, perceive of 
natural systems and and like the possible the palette of interactions that you can have with those systems and I, it's not it's not in that way of um you know we can completely teach an environmental science course through a game but um but it's just um you know if the status quo is that almost always game environments are just resources to be mined or um you know, like a scenic eye candy or something like that. I think there's just still yeah. much more to be done. Right. And I, I could actually say, I mean, I went, <laughs> this is a funny anecdote, but I, I was asked to be part of a career day panel for my son's elementary school. And, um, you know, Ooh. all the, it was fourth through sixth graders and they were all just super excited to find out that there was a mom that, um, you know, worked on games. <laughs> and so, but, you know, one thing I did was sort of pull them informally and said, you know, how many of you play games? It's, it's almost everybody. Um, mm -hmm. and then how, how, you know, is there nature in your games? And again, almost everybody says yes. And then mm -hmm. I say, you know, if, if there is nature, you know, in the games, what are you doing to it? And, um, and the answers are things like exploding it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like all, it was all just sort of like exploding and, um, you know, damaging or shooting it or whatever. <laughs> so or harvesting, harvesting, it, right? build, yeah, maybe building, but, um, they had a very, you know, no hesitation, right. They, they knew hmm. the sort of range of verbs available to them. So, um, like I didn't get anybody who was saying tending or growing or, um, observing mm. or anything like that, you know? So I think until that changes, I feel like we've got a lot of work to do. That's pretty much what you've outlined in the manifesto here. Yeah. Yeah. You have a 10 point manifesto. I'm going to try to see if I can group the first four together. Okay. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if you agree with that, but to me, they sort of, uh, they, they're sort of different portraits of the same subject in a way. Yeah. Yeah. So to summarize the, the first four points of your manifesto, uh, you have one, game worlds should be substrates, not vessels. Mm. Number two, games should suggest the power of non-human agency. Three, game worlds ought to surprise us. Mm -hmm. And four, games should entangle us, mm -hmm. uh, which is a reference to, uh, hang on, who was that? Darwin, Darwin, right? yeah, at the end of uh, On the Origin of Species. I really feel like number two is core to the entire thing, which is just this idea that... Um, you know, humans need to be dethroned as, as, you know, the end of the great chain of being or whatever metaphor <laughs> sort of is the one that you were yeah. raised in. But it's, it's, um, you know, we're just one very, um, large brained organism among many <laughs> in, in, in this great web of being. And this includes, the weird thing is also that it includes inorganic matter and, um, you know, geological phenomena and stuff like that. So, uh -huh. um, so just really thinking, um, again, that it's all it's all connected and recognizing interdependence and, um, you know, allowing for for things other than us to um, make meaningful choices and to also achieve flourishing or, you know, some kind of yeah. to have multi-species flourishing, which is, is something that Donna Haraway writes about. So, I mean, what I see here as, as a game designer, and maybe this is simplistic, but I, I see a call for like richer game worlds really or like mm -hmm. more more complete simulations and depictions of i guess ecology yeah in games or, or, or ecosystems yeah so i do think making richer game worlds um that you know imbuing them with with the the power to sort of um affect the game state <laughs> in unpredictable ways is a, is a huge thing <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it sounds simple. Just take the game worlds we have and make them richer. But <laughs> I, I, I think this is deeper than that. It's, it's about making 
letting the world play a more integral role in the game experience. Exactly. Not just having it be a backdrop to whatever whatever action is is happening, right? Whatever whatever is more important. And I, I love uh, I love to be surprised by games like that. Um, and I think I wish there were more experiences of that where. Um, you know, it's not just, you know, the presentation of new new levels of difficulty in the form of mobs or something like that, but um, or, you know, new new levels of customization for my avatar, <laughs> but, yeah. but rather that, uh, you know, as I explore, that exploration is rewarded or that as I linger, lingering is rewarded, you know, and um, right. And yeah, so that the the sort of palette of actions, again, is not just about passing through and destroying and uh, sort of using. Yeah, I, th- I think gamers want this. I mean, you, you talked about... <laughs> I do. <laughs> you, yeah, me too. No, but you, you talked about uh, getting regular or like commercial games to, uh, to include these things and not just the games for change types. Mm-hmm. And I, I think this is a pretty clear overlap where like gamers tend to recognize when a game world feels you know stiff or or empty or if it's just it's, it just feels like flat scenery if, even if mm-hmm. uh, you know how, how however uh beautiful the visuals are if, if if you can't like interact with it or if if it doesn't if it doesn't mm-hmm. come alive in in some sense you know that you feel like there's something missing and i i don't know if we have fully developed the language to speak about this stuff yet i mean because it's so endemic to gaming mm-hmm. uh, i mean in, in in my view places in games like they, they they're as important as the characters we form relationship with places in games we get to know them over time yeah yeah so like we we want them to be nuanced and, and, and believable i guess it's it's um it's a bit more radical to sort of expand non-human agency beyond like our companion species which it's very easy for us to do <laughs> Um, mm-hmm. to think about like, um, to, to think about like animals and animal protagonists or, oh, or things. And, and okay. so I've been doing some work into, you know, thinking about, um, uh, because I mean, a large part of the natural world is, is what we would consider to be inert or at least, yeah. um, sort of unfeeling or agency less. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I think this is sort of a way to remind us that, um, you know, even the land beneath us or, um, you know, minerals in the earth or, or any number of things are, are continuing to, um, shape the world around us. Right. Um, huh. so I think, I, I don't know. I mean, I always trot out David O'Reilly's mountain when I'm talking about this because, you know, there's a game where you're supposedly playing as a mountain or, or I really, it's more like you're tending the mountain, but, um, okay. yeah, it's, it, it's, um, you know, people wrote about it as a, as being surprised that they could get into a game that was really modeling geologic consciousness in some way, because the mountain has thoughts. I don't know if we have great examples of this yet, honestly. Right. But, but, yeah. But just so I understand you, uh, what you're advocating for is a kind of an e- even deeper sense of, uh, or an even deeper simulation where you don't just simulate the sort of moving actors, but you also simulate the sort of the, the things that generally move so slowly that games don't care about them. Yeah, I think that's that's um, it's also part of the scale, the scale recommendation, because um, a lot of these processes uh, move imperceptibly to human level space and time. Um, mm. And, uh, you know, people that are um, more well versed in this than I am have written about um, 
you know, how we just, you know, humans have blind spots in the sense that we're, we're really bad at, at thinking in like geological timescales. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's why we create nuclear waste and then we just sort of set it aside. <laughs> so, you know, I don't know. I think there's uh, and that's also why we have a hard time sort of wrestling with the implications of, of climate change and, um, a lot of this other sort of anthropogenic change. Um, Right. So because it's it's hard to even imagine the for how long people mm-hmm. and and other creatures are going to have to deal with mm-hmm. with the actions that we're taking you know this year this decade. Right, exactly. And so I think, you know, um you know games are these really um intricately wrought systems or at least they can be and they could also they can do this as well as they they can sort of give us that ability to um understand uh, broader timescales and, and spatial frames or spatial dynamics. Um, you know, not all games are going to do all of these things, but, uh, you know, this could be one, one focus. You also write about expanding the range of interaction between player and environment. Uh, and I really like that you raised the sort of, I guess, <laughs> I would call them more feminine sort of verbs <laughs> oh, of, of, the, of, a, of a kind that traditional games sort of have always struggled to include. And you, and you raise a couple of, uh, of verbs that you that we didn't see in games before the advent of like the, the not games movement and Dear Esther and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Hiking, meditating, noticing, rambling, appreciating, mm-hmm. uh, but, but also improving mm-hmm. like the, the sort of the whole tend and befriend uh, paradigm. Yeah, I could um, add to this dwelling. Um, you know, I, I once had an undergraduate write this amazing paper about using Sky, I think it was Skyrim, but he just wrote this amazing piece for me about, it was sort of like a creative work about going feral in Skyrim. <laughs> mm. So just like opting to live outside of cities and towns and um, sort of just living in the woods. <laughs> So I, I just think that's really interesting to, you know, yeah. to, to kind of overturn what a game is intended for or to, to use it for other purposes too. So the tricky thing too, is that I think a lot of, um, you know, as you probably know this very well, is that, uh, you know, tr- taking truly sustainable action is often inaction. <laughs> mm, so yeah. like the truly sustainable thing to do would to not do certain things, <laughs> like yeah. not, not take that flight across the country or not, not drive the car with a combustion engine. Um, you know, so it's, it's hard to frame inaction as action, but that is mm-hmm. also something that would be important, I think. So another point in the manifesto is that the people who make games, that's us, mm-hmm. or that's me, uh, should take into account the energy and resource demands of their games. And, uh, yeah, of course. Um, the, there's a whole work stream in the IGDA climate sig dedicated exactly. to this, is, this aspect if I, of game if making. If I had known about we, it at the yeah. time, this is where I would have pointed people to the sig. <laughs> yeah. So we, we, we sort of covered that kind of extensively already, and, and we're going to keep covering it on the podcast. But I, I think it's interesting to see that it's on this list that's otherwise full of like very creative choices. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's obvious that this perspective is needed in order to, to manage gaming's environmental footprint. Uh, but do you feel like it's also useful for creating the the rambunctious aspect of game worlds mm. or is, is it a separate thing? I think it's unruly in the sense that it's kind of upsetting the status quo and the, you know, I think um, to, to take this, to take this point seriously is to, is really doing quite a bit of labor to, um, you know, educate people and to, um, uh, to kind of 
change the natural order of current game design. <laughs> um, so mm. I, I do think that takes a lot of effort and actually a, some kind of boisterousness um, to make yourself heard. And it's not just games even, because I think even with, a, you know, like with high quality streaming, um, you know, people are now trying to make the comparison between doing like HD streaming and eating um, steak. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So this is just kind of like a revolution in worldview, I think. You have a point that is kind of uh, adjacent to this, uh, which is number nine. Graphics shouldn't be everything. Mm, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, I mean, that that obviously relates to like the, the energy and resource demands, uh, because graphical fidelity is responsible for like a vast and increasing chunk of gaming's footprint. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Both in terms of electricity use, but also as a key motivation for the continued hardware cycle. Exactly. And I, um, I, I think I often in the, and I give talks and then um, people always want to know how I feel about VR. Of course, I don't want to discourage creativity in the area. And I have friends that work in this area as well. And um, but it's kind of driving or perpetuating the, you know, Moore's law, <laughs> unsustainability of Moore's law. And, um, mm. you know, I'm, I'm, I teach my students about, um, like, uh, data centers and their energy demands. And, um, Microsoft is trying to pilot these underwater data centers and, um, in their video promoting it, they, they actually say it's because we're seeing more and more use of AR, VR type applications, Right. That we need to get yeah. our data closer to our customers <laughs> and all of these things. And so, um, you know, we're, I think gamers are at the forefront of sort of pushing these, these hardware, um, the, the obsolescence, the planned obsolescence of hardware. Yep. And I, I, you know, that, that should concern us, I think, um, more than it does. Yeah. And it's not just gaming hardware either. It's, it's yeah, like you say, the data centers, but I think gaming is also a, a, a huge reason why we keep updating our phones, for example, right. or upgrading our phones, I should say. Right, exactly. Yeah. But I, I, I wanted to say that when I read this, I felt like a, here is where I see a connection between uh, the graphical sobriety, as Arnaud Fayol would say. <laughs> uh, and um, and I think that's a French thing. I I only ever heard hear French people talk about sobriety. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but uh, I, I think it's, it can also be good advice from a creative standpoint to sort of think about where where you draw the line in the sand of fidelity. Uh, because to me, fidelity tends to be like a, a, a vortex. <laughs> but once you start, you sort of create the expectation of more fidelity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Simple example, like you, you take a game from standard definition to high definition. You, all you do is you erase the number of pixels. Mm -hmm. But then suddenly your low poly assets start to look a little bit weird <laughs> in comparison. And, and, and then you have to, to up the quality of those. And, and then you start to feel like it's getting kind of weird yeah. when everything looks so good that you have different audio or that you, that you have the same audio for walking on grass and walking on sand. <laughs> so then you have to add that. And, and, and it's a rabbit hole that never ends. Oh, boy. Yeah. Uh, right. so, so like from, from, uh, and especially when we're talking about creating, uh, simulations, mm -hmm. uh, like, like with these sort of gardens we're talking about, mm -hmm. I think it's extremely important to set your limitations early on in, in, in the design process so that you know where the rabbit hole ends mm -hmm. and you can mm -hmm. set player expectations accordingly. Mm -hmm. This is something that we talk, thought about a lot when we made uh, Faye, uh, which is a game that I, I helped direct mm -hmm. in 2016 to 2018, uh, which is sort of a forest ecosystem simulation in in a sense. It's it's not 
particularly deep. <laughs> uh, but we made a point of, of, uh, of finding a very low poly art style in part because we wanted to get away with things. Mm-hmm. But because when, when you sort of opt for low fidelity uh, from the beginning, people don't expect like entirely realistic animal AI. And, you know, they, mm-hmm. they don't expect to be able to uh, mm-hmm. grab a single leaf mm-hmm. from a tree mm-hmm. Uh, which is an, an expectation that we would never have been able to uh, to uh, realize. Mm-hmm. So it is about uh, managing expectations, and I, I think of it that way a lot when, when it comes to uh, to uh, fidelity, especially. There, I guess there are games that kind of qualify for um, a sort of minimalist aesthetic. I kind of celebrate that because it shows that the the medium has matured, and uh, I try to make the point in in my book also that. Um, Fidelity is not the only route or realism is not the only route and that there's a lot of room for absurd, absurdist style. And I, this essay, I think, that we're talking about now is also trying to to make that point of um, a lot of environmental messaging is very doom and gloom and uh, it doesn't make you feel good about yourself. And Yeah. <laughs> you know, games have this uh, this power that could be harnessed to explore all these different kinds of affects. Um, Nicole Seymour talks about this in her book, Bad Environmentalism, but you know, mm. things like irreverence and irony and <laughs> camp. Mm-hmm. Um, and that those, those are, those could be really powerful portals into kind of different environmental perceptions and behaviors. It doesn't have to just be post-apocalyptic scenario, um, you know, sort of. Uh, whacking you over the head with dystopia. Yeah, I mean, we need help imagining what we want, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> and and yet, at the same time, at the end, at the very end of the manifesto, there's this point. I, I, it's hard to pick a favorite, but th- this might be my favorite point. Uh, game, games should help us mourn. Yeah, yeah. And this is, um, I mean, here I'm, there's a, it's really kind of horrible to say, but there is now an academic subfield of, of extinction studies. Mm-hmm. And so there are people in the so-called environmental humanities who have been writing about, you know, what is extinction? What does it mean not only to us humans, but to the species that are going extinct um, historically and, and in the contemporary moment? And, uh, you know, I think reading these texts it, it really does sort of remind me that culture is one of our ways of processing <laughs> deep sort of individual and collective grief over the loss of um, not just species or individuals of species, but I think as as Tom Van Doren writes, it's about um, life ways that are being lost. <laughs> mm. So um, like ways of being in the world that yeah. are that are unique to these species. And so... Yeah. Um, and so it's it, that makes it it's 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 more complicated than just um, like an organism, right, or or an ecosystem, <clears throat> or a place, right, right. We're, it's, we're it's, losing places too. It's all of those things together, and the ways that they um, coexist, or you know, um, have been designed over centuries and millennia, whatever, <laughs> um, to sort of exist together, right. And so as we just sort of sort of pick individual strands out. Uh, you know, what, what happens. Um, so yeah, I think, uh, you know, thinking about games is sort of helping us to grapple with that and come to terms with it and, uh, you know, maybe stir us to action. But, um, but I think, I think part of getting people to act or, or to even care is, is this 
is this first step of, of acknowledgement. <laughs> yeah. That's beautiful. Aww. I th- again, thank you so much for, for writing this manifesto. It's really inspired me and I'm sure it, it, it will continue to inspire other, other developers around the, around the block. Oh, I hope so. No, I, I mean, I'm, I'm working a little bit on the, um, the design patterns database for the climate SIG. And uh, so, so I'm thinking of all of this in terms of like, how can we, uh, how can we turn these into uh, actions for the database so and, and uh, absorb all of this uh, wisdom? Thank you for taking this and doing something with it. <laughs> yeah, of course. Uh, I'm so glad you could come on. Is there anything else that you want to say to to the audience? No, I just I would just say thank you for all of the work that you're that you're doing, and I really appreciate the chance to kind of get out of the. Um, of the box of, of the university and have a chance to, mm. to work with, uh, you know, scientists and game designers and, um, kind of cross that, that barrier that's between theory and practice. Um, uh-huh. so I just think it's really good. It's a, it's a model for, for future, future collaboration. And, um, I hope that, I hope that we are able to actually drive some change. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, that's great. We're, <laughs> We're going to have to get you out of that box some more then. Yes. <laughs> uh, we, 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 I mean, we had to speed through this and there's tons that I didn't even touch on. So, <laughs> Well, thank you so much. And I guess just good luck. Good luck with everything. I guess I'll catch up with you soon, probably. Yeah. <laughs> okay. See you around. All right. Bye. Okay, this episode of Doing Our Bit has been hosted and produced by myself, Hugo Bille, uh, and edited by Joel Bille and designed in collaboration with Rebecca Pettersson. The music that you hear is from the album Rat Vader's Dream by Oscar Delius and Niklas Åkerblad. I, I hope that we can put out another episode in two weeks' time as per usual, uh, but slight warning, by then my partner and I will probably have had a baby so who knows what happens then uh so you guys take care and i'll i'll see you on the other side bye <laughs>